It's 2023, and there are 634 First Nations in our country, and some 90% of them have severe on-reserve poverty. This is an outrageous situation. Well, I'm delighted to tell you that I have a very special leader on our program today, Mr. Dale Swampy, and he's got a vision to change that. A clear path forward requires looking back and learning. Good public policy requires human connection. It's a consideration of the facts, applying common sense and innovation. It's urban, it's rural, it's real life. We all have something to contribute. We all have a responsibility to get informed because there's a little piece of Canada in all of us, isn't there? Let's learn on this path together. This is Leaders on the Frontier. So welcome, Dale Swampy. It's great to see you here. Yeah, thanks for having me. Appreciate the time. Now, uh, Dale, you are uh, a member of uh, Samson, the Samson Cree uh, First Nation in Alberta. And That's uh, you were uh, the CEO of the uh, First Nation for some 22 years. And then later in 2016, you founded the National Coalition of Chiefs, and you're the president. Uh, why did you found that uh, organization? Well, first of all, I wasn't the CEO for 22 years. I left um, uh, as a CEO to start my own consulting company to work for um, specifically pipelines and so forth. But um, we started the National Coalition of Chiefs as um, um, partly because of the cancellation of Northern Gateway. We kind of fell backwards into the coalition model. In 2006, when I left my band to start working on my own, you know, if you told me that a uh, coalition of chiefs working together, you know, is is a good model to to, to utilize, I wouldn't have believed you because, um, first of all, our four our four nations within our own community can't work together. Um, it's it's difficult for chiefs to get together because they don't often have the same viewpoints or same ideologies and so forth. So it's difficult for them to join. But when we when we had Northern Gateway, there was a common benefit that brought them all together. And I think that was one something that was key to it. And something more um, impactful was the fact that each First Nation got an equal share of the um, the equity that was being offered by Northern Gateway. And this allowed chiefs who represented smaller communities with less capacity, less influence and so forth, you know, to come to the table because they knew they had an equal voice. And I think that was, um, that was, you know, the real impetus for uh, the kind of success that they had. They, they started working together. They had more influence. They were able to get more benefits than just the 10% equity. So Dale, can you explain what the uh, Northern Gateway project really was for people that are not familiar with it? Well, it was a, a large pipeline that was going to go from Bruderheim, Alberta to um, Kitimat, uh, BC. It was going to build a terminal in Kitimat, one of the uh, um, widest and deepest channels, the Douglas Channel, uh, safest channel uh, today. It's it's where right now LNG Canada has their uh, terminal for uh, the, uh, the LNG terminal that they have that they're building now. So we we started uh, to work for them in 2010. They were working already for about six years, trying to get First Nations to come on side with them and 
sign agreements and so forth. When we started there in 2010, one of the first questions was, you know, what do what do First Nations really want? And we saw from our previous experience in uh, Alberta Clipper and Southern Lights that what they really wanted was long-term agreements rather than one, you know, one agreement, sign off with a check and then walk away. And it's difficult for the uh, for the pipeliner too because um, most of the activities in construction, once it's built, there's uh, it's kind of out of sight, out of sight, out of mind. There's hardly any work being done for uh, operations and uh, and integrity work and so forth. But uh, I think Northern Gateway was different because it wasn't just owned by the uh, pipeliner, which was Enbridge. It was owned by nine of the producers mm-hmm. in the oil sands five of the biggest producers, um, almost all the producers from the oil sands except CNRL. And when they when they went into the project, instead of creating a one-off uh, signing agreement with one check, they agreed to uh, sign an agreement for 30 years. And on top of that agreement, they were willing to give free and gifted equity to the First Nations. So they didn't have to finance, they didn't have to you know, they weren't uh, deducted in any way for, you know, any cost of borrowing and so mm-hmm. forth. So this gift was uh, was given to them. And, and to offset the uh, shareholders' loss of uh, income from their revenues that they've been given to the First Nations, the the uh, producers agreed to top up the toll rate in order to handle it because they knew, they knew that, the, that the oil wasn't going to the United States. It was going all to Asia, 100%. Something you don't see in TMX. Right. TMX, you're just going to see a small portion of that going to to Asia with the Brent prices, increased increased price opportunities, and so forth. So that was unique. And we had 31 of the 40 communities signed on as owners of the pipeline. And by the time they negotiated over six years with the owners group, they had uh, accomplished uh, not just 10 percent, but 33 and a third percent ownership, 200 million dollars in uh, benefit, or I mean, two billion dollars in benefits over 30 years, which included a 200 million dollar community investment fund that would be managed by all the chiefs, a 200 million dollar employment and training program that would be handled by the chiefs that would that would last for 30 years, you know, um, environmental monitoring, uh, some 31 First Nations would have 31 workers monitoring the pipeline throughout its life. And, uh, you know, an environmental protection plan for marine and coastal over 30 years that was award, going to be awarded to the First Nations uh, over 30 years um, at a cost of about $700 million. So I think the pipeline would have been built. Um, there would have been a lot of social acceptance on it because most of the First Nations were behind it. It's just that uh, the federal government made a political decision to cancel it, and they refused to meet with our group, which was the Aboriginal Equity Partners, which was the 31 uh, First Nations that got together and uh, wow. continued to meet, refused to meet with them so that Trudeau could could say that he never met anybody that, that, that uh, liked the project or approved the project. So, so just, to, just to be clear on the headline, this was a monster energy project involving billions, and its impacts to First Nations would have been profoundly positive. That's, that's the bottom line, is it not, Dale? Oh, definitely. Yeah. There is no other uh, pipeline or 
or project in Canada or the world for that matter that's that hasn't given more than what Northern Gateway would have given to First Nations. Wow. And there was even a there was even talks of a hiring a CEO from the one of the First Nations in BC uh, within five years of operations to uh, to uh, manage the project. Wow. So so why did you feel so passionate? about this project deal? I mean, I know that it wasn't just you as a large team of, of uh, First Nation leaders, but why were you so passionate about it? Well, I think it, it really, we came to realize that the the coalition model, the way it was set up, uh, created a group of First Nation leaders who had a common goal, common interest, and worked, rolled up their sleeves and worked for their communities. And the political um, problems didn't exist in this type of coalition because all of the chiefs around the table respected each other and didn't want to bring forward anything that's, uh, you know, would be politically wrong. Um, you know, like hiring your brother-in-law to become mm-hmm. a manager or, or yeah. something like that. It wouldn't look good in the other chiefs my eyes because, you know, they respected each other. And we found that, uh, they worked a lot more consistently. Mm-hmm. All of the chiefs uh, participated in meetings because they knew they had, they had an equal say. There wasn't one chief or one individual that uh, owned more of the project than them. So they felt comfortable and uh, it created a lot of uh, camaraderie. And when Coastal Gas Link was going on to further approval after our project, uh, they hit the ground running because they're the, most of the chiefs that were on that pipeline were on northern gateway pipeline so they were already in a, in a sense pipeliners and they were able to you know hit the ground running get the project off the ground and get it approved wow so it's an exciting story in a way that 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 these first nations work together as a team you call use the word coalition like does that mean like a, a region around a project working together as a team right and that's what we promoted National Coalition of Chiefs. We promote what we call regional coalitions. We believe we believe that regional coalitions should be established not just to approve major project developments, but to enhance infrastructure. Mm-hmm. Um, it's it's one of the things we, we we support and we support, for example, the Atlantic First Nations Water Authority, which is really a regional coalition of seventeen First Nations who signed a transfer agreement with INAC to bring their monies to a a company owned by the 17 First Nations to manage their water systems. Mm -hmm. And it's important to do that because one First Nation cannot manage a a huge water system and keep the technical expertise in place. We're like uh, little islands and surrounded by municipalities that we don't partner with. Uh, Municipalities across this country partner on infrastructure a lot. All you have to do is look at Red Deer Water Authority and see the kind of kind of cooperation they have from the municipalities of central Alberta, one of the biggest water authorities in, uh, in North America, and they supply water to all of the communities. And the communities don't have to worry about water purification processes mm-hmm. because Red Deer handles it for them. And that's what we need with coalitions. You get a regional coalition of 20 First Nations together. You know, they organize a company that purifies the water for them and provides them with clean drinking water. We have to talk about sustainable communities, make sure that we put our houses into townships rather than in, into acreages that we're seeing a lot of these days. And uh, right now it's just incredibly costly to 
um, you know, to manage a house on an acreage, you know, the utilities are much more expensive than they are in a township or a metropolitan area. Everything is more expensive. Um, you need to you need to bring the community together to 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 provide provide this sustainable model, and to get the technical expertise, you have to join with other re, with other uh, First Nations and, and and create this regional coalition so that you can build you know better communities for our for our people. You know what you're saying makes so much sense, Dale. Working together as a regional team around a common purpose really brings results together. So there are solutions here, aren't there? Um, and it strikes me that's the reason why you founded the National Coalition of Chiefs, is it not? Yeah, it was uh, myself and uh, late Chief Elmer Derrick who uh, convinced me not to go back into consulting and to start the National Coalition. And we started working together with um, a lot of the oil and gas and natural resource uh, proponents to to becoming at the beginning to become more of an ad, advocacy group for them to be able to support the 14,000 self-identified, for example, indigenous workers in the oil and gas sector to um, support major projects and to communicate to the proponents and to the First Nations that they should incorporate the regional coalition model in order to get, you know, better benefits, uh, you know, better ownership into the projects and so forth and better support from the Canadian people and the Canadian government on these projects. So it's very interesting. Um... Would you say one of your key goals for founding the, the Coalition of Chiefs is to get rid of on-reserve poverty? That's right. And, uh, you know, I, I always um, say to government, and to proponents, people that I know in the industry, as well as within the government, that uh, we have to listen to the administrators we have to listen to the band managers we have to listen to the social welfare workers they are the people that have the pulse of the first nation community and a lot of chiefs as well chiefs and counselors mm-hmm. that work with the community on in a, on a long-term basis and see the kind of uh, situation we have within our townships and within a lot of the communities we have 60 70 percent of of the people are on social welfare mm-hmm. because they just don't have any employment opportunities they're usually remote. In other words, they can't walk to a local employment service office. They feel like they're disenfranchised from society because nobody's out there to be able to help them. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's created a generational uh, normalcy of uh, social welfare, of a social welfare system that hurts and keeps on hurting our people. And when you're not doing anything, you you create a lot of problems, uh, a lot of social problems. Alcohol and drug abuse, murder and missing women, domestic violence, you name it. This all comes from poverty. And if we can attack poverty, then we can get rid of all the social ills that exist on our reserves. Wow. So it's a powerful overview, Dale, um, because a lot of these challenges are really a symptom. I think what you're pointing to is the root issue is poverty. So how do right. you deal with poverty? We, we, we do business. Is that right, Dale, I, I, without oversimplifying it? Exactly. We, we've got to cooperate, uh, you know, with industry. We've got to cooperate with uh, society. We, we need to be able to, you know, reap the benefits of the economic, of the economy of Canada. Mm-hmm. And for 150 years, uh, we've had the biggest, best natural resource industry in the world. 
you know, the safest, the most environmental friendly. Mm-hmm. And we need to be part of that. So we always encourage partnerships with uh, between First Nations and industry. Yeah. And we support that. And we think that's, that that's the way to bring us out of poverty. Mm-hmm. You know, the Fort Mackay First Nation, for example, is one of the you know richest communities in North America. They have 100% employment. All of their people work within the OSANs, but it didn't happen overnight. It took them 50 years of working with uh, the oil and gas industry, and the oil and gas industry embraced them and worked with them and made sure that they got extra consideration to be able to, you know, transfer from a social welfare society into a working environment, and it succeeded. So it's been done before. We just need we need corporations to be able to, you know, come up and work with us and start what we call what we're calling the National First Nation Social Welfare Employment Program. And we think it's a it's it's a remedy remedy for success for for what's happening within our communities. We just need the 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 government, both the provincial and the federal, and proponents from the natural resource industry to work together to develop these uh, these programs. Now, when you say Fort Mackay, can you tell us more about the the average income? Uh, like these are very successful communities. Can you tell us more about how successful they really are? Yeah, and uh, you know, we you go on a tour of uh, their community, and you'll see the kind of you you think you, you you've gotten into uh, you know the uh, a community within Calgary or Edmonton because they're they're fully employed. You know, there's there's nobody walking around the streets because everybody's at work. Mm-hmm. You know that sort of thing. They have. They built a great high school just the other the other day. They have one of the largest um, um, household medium incomes in uh, North America, is something like 144,000 per household. It, it was companies like Suncor who offered, who guaranteed that if they, if one of their community members graduates from grade 12, they'll guarantee them a job. So wow. that that had a that had a real impact. That that showed that a young guy growing up in high school that, hey, you know, somebody really cares about me. Somebody really wants me to work. They're willing to offer me this job. So it, it created a lot of positive impact for for the community. And every community member is, uh, you know, very involved in being able to get people within their community to work. And that takes out a lot of the stress of your normal life and so forth. And you get a lot of students who go to grade 12 and they don't leave uh, the community because they 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 can make more money staying on the reserve than they can moving off. No, I, I think that's a very exciting uh, success uh, story that needs to be told uh, from coast to coast. Um, and I think what's very interesting about that is maybe people don't realize, and I've, I've had the privilege of going to many different First Nations, a number of them very isolated, and I use the analogy that it's almost like going to a different country. There's not only different cultural practices, but there's a sense of isolation that you really can't underestimate then as people come and uh, those persons uh, join us in larger cities where they it might be totally foreign to them. Is that not a fair comment, Dale? Oh, I think so. I mean, <clears throat> one of the reasons that we don't get the kind of support from Canadians who, in my mind, are the best you know, the most kindest people in the world, uh, the best people in the world don't support and, and try to help our First Nation communities because they don't understand. They're not informed mm-hmm. about what 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 has gone on in the last 
150, 200 years uh, with our communities. I mean, we were, we were put on these reserves. We were a hunters and trappers and gatherers. You know, we shouldn't shouldn't have been put on these little 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 tiny islands within this country, mm-hmm. and we suffered because of it. And because of that, uh, it's 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 been a generational thing that's gone on and on and on. And, and the people, I think, need to support the kind of programs that we're trying to put together uh, that mirror what what went on in Fort Mackay. Suncor and the Syncrudes and the Meg Energies, they knew about the situation uh, Fort Mackay was was in because Fort Mackay was located right within the sand, you know, the oil sands uh, mm-hmm. area. So they really needed to help that community, saw the problems that they, they had and so forth and, uh, and roll up their sleeves and went out there. And that's what we need from Canadians. Mm-hmm. We need them to be informed. And the only way we're going to be able to inform, get Canadians informed is to be able to get them educated. And the only way we can get them educated is to get the curriculum, the historical curriculum out there for the uh, young people growing up in this country. It reminds me of an individual from um, New Zealand who was working with our project and one of the Aboriginal equity partner meetings that we had in Northern Gateway where all the chiefs gathered. He went up there and he said, Dale, I want to, can you allow me to do the, uh, uh, give me the honoring uh, opening prayer. And I said, sure, go ahead. And he spoke in his uh, native language, Maori. I shouldn't say native language. He was from New Zealand, but he wasn't a Maori. And I went up to him and I said, that's great, you know, that you learned your the tongue of your, your, your you know, native community within your country. And he said, Dale, no, we learned that from grade, from grade one all the way through grade 12. Wow. It's a part of, uh, you know, what we, what we do. And they embrace their tradition mm-hmm. and culture. They know the Maori people, you know, and that's what we, we need to we need to do in Canada. We need to get people to to understand them, you know, and to appreciate them. My sister has a um, has a soup kitchen on our reserve. Can you imagine our reserve? One of the richest communities in Canada has a soup kitchen, but she has volunteers from uh, off reserve that come there and uh, help them help them. They know the situation. They're not scared to come onto the reserve. They, they're up there helping. If if all Canadians knew what they knew, I'm sure they would they would help us. They, yeah. The problem is, it, as a social welfare society, you're, you're, you're dealing with community members who have, you know, fathers and grandfathers and, and so forth. And, and they all went, they were all on social welfare. So you tend to do what your parents do and so forth. So you know, the transition will take some time and uh, you need to you need to make a long term plan. You need to be able to say to yourself, this is going to take time mm-hmm. and commit yourself to it. And we can bring our people out of mm-hmm. out of uh, poverty. Mm-hmm. What what people see and, you know, you talk you talk to me and, you know, I'm a university graduates and so forth. We come from a you know solid family structure, but that's only about 30 or 40 percent of the First Nation people that uh, actually exist on the reserve. We need to focus on the people that that need us most. The the people with uh, you know grade six education, no skills, virtually unemployable. That are twenty or 30, 40 year old people who've never had a full time job in their life. We've got to transition them into the uh, into the um, employed society. In order to do that, we got to commit to them extra consideration. In order to get 
this extra consideration, we need Canadian people behind it because they're not going to approve the kind of expenditures that it's going to take to be able to get them off the reserve. Right on. So that's what we're working on right now. And Dale, you know, in conversation with you, uh, I, I, I guess one of the things that I really like about your vision, what you're saying, is you're not talking about being a victim here. You're talking about, in fact, you, you're not funded by the government. The, the National uh, Coalition of Chiefs. It's not funded by the government. Is that correct? That's correct. When we when we first incorporated, or not incorporated, but when we first gathered together with the chiefs, um, we had a meeting about funding. We knew that we were going to do some advocacy work and we were going to get some sponsorships from oil and gas companies, from natural resource companies, mining companies, and so forth. But uh, we could access federal funding and provincial funding. So we met in Edmonton, and one of the chiefs says, Dale, we can't get federal funding. All you got to do is look around this city, this government city. There are 26 companies within the city that get federal funding that are uh, associated with social welfare and employment and training for First Nation people. They're in the city of Edmonton. They do us no good 300 kilometers away where our people are that need the employment and uh, training and so forth to 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 you know get out of the um you know the unemployment that we that we have in our community mm -hmm. they become bureaucracies and if we get funding from the federal government we're going to become a bureaucracy too you know and uh, we're not going to be able to speak against government policy so we decided not to get federal funding not to get provincial funding and we've been writing letters to uh, the federal government we've been attending hearings on uh, legislative uh, uh, bills to oppose, you know, things like UNDRIP, uh, the tanker ban, you know, C-69, a new uh, Canadian energy regulator. We're continuing to work with UNDRIP on the action plan to make sure that it becomes a little more specified so that we don't scare away investment mm -hmm. in the natural resource industry. So we're working hard to do that. And we couldn't do that, we don't think, if we had federal funding because, we support the oil sands. The federal government doesn't, mm -hmm. so we'd be cautious about that if we had federal funding. So we needed we needed to be independent, privately funded, so that we could speak against government policy. And we're continuing to do that right. to this day. I, I I think that's very strategic in terms of your decision making to, frankly, be independent to have your voice as a First Nations. Uh, and what strikes me about that deal is that you are very clear about wanting to do business, to get people employed, to get rid of on-reserve poverty. And your vision is one of being, well, strongly independent to be uh, really, I think in many ways, building on the, the rich history of First Nations as proud independent people. Is that is that a fair comment? That's right. Um we believe what, you know, our society, the way it is, the tradition and culture is something that we have to, we have to, you know, get our people, especially our people on social welfare, to embrace their identity, to, um, to be able to be proud of who they are and to be able to come out of the situation they are right now. And uh, in order to do that, we need to be able to get them, you know, uh, programs that, that can supply them with this. It's it's interesting because as an administrator, I've seen the kind of things that happen with young people growing up, uh, not being able to get, uh, you know, exposed to their culture and tradition because they're so 
tied into this social welfare society that doesn't allow them, doesn't give them the opportunity to go out to enjoy powwows and round dances and and sun dances and so forth. Uh, and it's and it's tragic. And we need to reverse that. We need to we need to get our people um, to embrace their identity, embrace their tradition and culture. And once they do that, they'll see the kind of pride and uh, they'll, they'll start to start to realize that, yes, I can get out of here and I can do this, this kind of uh, transition. So, Dale, one of the things that you talked earlier about is a number of bills uh, that are happening, uh, Bill C-48, C-69, um, for people that aren't familiar with those things, those are, those are, that's legislation really in, well, I get, can you explain what, what that legislation is and uh, the problems with it? Well, we started to advocate against the, um, the first bill that came out in 2016 when we first got established, which was a tanker ban. Uh, Trudeau uh, not only wanted to cancel Northern Gateway, he wanted to make sure no other pipeline would be able to get there. So he, he passed this legislation called the, the uh, tanker ban in Northwestern and well, throughout Canada. And, and the tanker ban really inhibited our ability to be able to get bitumen to the, to the West coast. So we, we argued against that. We we brought chiefs to Ottawa to speak against it, both in the in hearings and on uh, uh, conferences, uh, televised uh, press conferences, and so forth. And we did it several times. When C sixty nine the uh, the change from the National Energy Board to the Canadian Energy Regulator came into effect, we saw the kind of hindrances that it was going to create for project development and we spoke against it and we continue to speak against it and we don't want that conversation to die so we we were you know uh very supportive of the provincial governments of alberta and saskatchewan when they continued the fight against c69 mm-hmm. and the canadian energy regulator and it's still being argued in the courts for example as well and uh when undrip came up and uh got passed in uh, BC, we wanted clarification on UNDRIP because UNDRIP is very ambiguous. It's uh, general. I think it was developed initially uh, as a template for countries to be able to amend to suit their own their own situations. And the way it was passed in BC when it first came out, there was no real change to it. The, the wording was still the same. And when it got passed here in Canada, through the federal government, it was passed in the same manner. So we're working with them on the action plan to make sure that uh, we're able to get some certainty in this legislation. Mm-hmm. We made we suggested five conditions uh, be applied to UNDRIP and to FPIC specifically, the free and prior and informed consent part of that legislation. Uh, we want to be able to ensure that uh, there's a defined process for project development mm-hmm. and that there's no ability for environmentalists or any anybody to be able to say that there's uh, you know been a lack of consultation mm-hmm. or that there's uh, a lack of environmental protection or that there's uh, you know a land dispute of some sort so those five conditions were important and we hope that they'll incorporate that sometime in the near future so Dale just to be um, direct here I would think a lot of people a lot of Canadians who've never set foot on a First Nation 
um, would be shocked to hear what you're saying. I think a lot of people, this is my strong suspicion, and I talk with, you know, as you do, a lot of people who have good intentions, and they would probably be under the impression that most First Nations are against doing business or um, working with natural resource projects. Like if you listen to a lot of the, the mainstream media, you'd think that every First Nation is opposed to these kinds of projects of opportunity. But that's not reality, is it, Dale? No, I, you know, when we first started the National College of Chiefs, we indicated in our uh, mandate that our organization was uh, a group of pro-development chiefs, pro-development mm -hmm. and and wanted to work with the natural resource industry. And we thought, you know, at, at first that there was a small, you know, minority of chiefs that would join us. But after a while, we began to realize that there is not one chief that does not want to work with natural resource industry. Sorry, can you repeat there, that again, Dale? Not one? We we haven't met one chief who has, is not willing to work with the natural resource industry. Yeah. You know, they're all concerned about environment, and that's important because we, we become the land stewards of the of our own uh, of our own reserves and our own traditional territory and we're it's important for us to be able to you know make sure that the land is protected and we also realize that all of the chiefs within this country have to deal every day with across their desk their own band members coming to them and saying we need jobs how, how can you get us jobs yeah and the biggest industry in this country is the natural resource industry mm -hmm. so we need to be involved in that natural resource industry development and the only way we can get involved in that is to be able to partner with them and to support them exactly and that's what we've been doing and uh it's been a it, it's it's been a you know less less of a tougher fight than we thought it would be we thought it, we, we thought we would uh, see a lot of opposition we really haven't seen a lot of opposition from First oh. Nation leaders. Uh, we're trying to do our best to be able to um, get our people out of poverty because that is what the primary goal of, mm -hmm. of most of our leaders that are part of our groups. Um, we're trying to develop the uh, natural resource industry so that environmental protection is first and foremost. And I think that's you know more easily done in a country like Canada than it is in a third world country or mm. even the United States. We have a better record for environmental protection than the United States. So if you really want to talk about ESG and buying, you know, something like natural gas, uh, the world should look at Canada for exactly. natural gas. What, what is ESG, by the way, Dale? Well, environmental, social, and social uh, acceptance and government mm -hmm. governance. And, you know, it's, it's, it, it wasn't, you know, a philosophy or a guideline for corporations, proponents and governments until maybe about 15 years ago, you know, 30 years ago, there was no need for corporations to, you know, knock on the door of First Nations and ask for their approval to build a project in their traditional territory. The only time you really had to get approval from them was if it was on reserve. And I think that's an opportunity that we have to take advantage of now. You know, the fact that a lot of the proponents now are willing to give us, you know, equity and partnerships within their project developments. And that's important. And we didn't have that 20 years ago, 30 years ago. We had to work on our own to get that. Yeah. And I think right now we have an opportunity and we've got to 
we got to grasp it. We got to get out there and do it. Right on. Well, it's an exciting opportunity for everybody, not just First Nations, but all Canadians, because in the world context, the demand for energy has never been higher. It continues to rise. Uh, some people may be shocked to hear that. We also have the reality that uh, Canada does have a very diversified energy portfolio. We're very environmentally responsible as a jurisdiction, as, as you said. So the world needs more of Canadian energy. And with First Nations, we can do it, can't we, Dale? That's right. I mean, we're working with, uh, you know, supporting uh, projects like Pathways Alliance. We believe that uh, CCS and CCUS are uh, the answer to reducing the amount of emissions that, you know, Canada creates through uh, oil and gas operations. We believe actually that First Nation communities, regional coalitions should own CCUS, CCS and CCUS <laughs> projects because who better to own those projects than the stewards of the land, exactly. the people that are going to be yeah. there for, for generations and generations. Well, and speaking of uh, those kinds of projects at Frontier, one of the, the projects that we've been very uh, intrigued about is the so-called Nistanen project, uh, a utility corridor. It would be several kilometers wide. And it would go from west to east and from east to west and would accommodate all kinds of commodities from wheat, potash, and all the rest, but including energy. And the whole idea is to bring this to um, the, the coast, specifically Hudson's Bay, so that uh, things can be exported, including uh, hydroelectric energy, say, from Manitoba to Saskatchewan, Alberta, and uh, oil and gas from uh, Alberta and Saskatchewan to the Hudson's Bay and out to other export markets. What do you think about those kinds of opportunities? Well, I think they're they're viable. They're they're um, supported by the First Nations between Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba, in which the proposed line goes from uh, starts at uh, Fort Mackay and ends at uh, Fox Lake uh, on the Hudson's Bay. And I think it's important for people to understand that First Nations can lead projects like that. It's, it's, it would be surprising for a lot of Canadians to see First Nations lead these kind of things because a lot of First Nations aren't informed about what we want to do and how we want to you know, participate in the prosperity in this country. And I think it's something that uh, we need to support. We support uh, all kinds of projects that we think should come out, off the ground. I mean, things like uh, Cedar LNG, you know, wood fiber LNG, those type of projects being led by First Nations are going to be something that is going to be common, I think, in the next few years. Yeah. You're going to see a lot more proposals like that. So you need to support it because we think we can get it done. No, they're very exciting projects. And uh, it's interesting, the word Nistanen means it's Cree for, uh, for working together. So I think it's very apropos. Um, so, Dale, when you think of the larger picture then, when it comes to these kinds of natural resource projects, where does the opposition tend to come from then? If it's not really so much from First Nations, and I know that one has to be careful not to generalize uh, about specifics because there are um, concerns, specific issues that need to be dealt with, but where does the opposition generally come from? Well, I, I think it comes um, externally. I don't think there's a whole lot of Canadians that are on the picket lines and uh, supporting you know, the kind of movements that are going on right now. Mm -hmm. I think uh, First Nations are being exploited 
you know, by environmentalists. We've seen that on the Northern Gateway project. Mm. You know, there's people got to realize that I, uh, you know, the part part of the what what is created by a social welfare department is young people who are, you know, feeling disenfranchised by society. Feel like there's no place in society for them. They're angry, so they're looking for a fight. And once when some environmentalist comes onto the reserve and tells them that this is, uh, you know, the good versus the bad, you know, they feel like they're doing it, you know, they're justified to do it. Mm. And unfortunately, they're the ones that get the criminal records from this. Wow. The environmentalists coming in. Yeah. You know, we've got to get away from, um, you know, listening to rich kid celebrities uh, flying in helicopters telling us what, you know, they think they aren't. They Mm. they aren't this scientists we gotta we gotta listen to the experts on mm-hmm. this and the experts are telling us that we need a sustainable transition mm. we can't transition immediately to solar and and uh, wind power yeah we can't transition uh, uh, in in such a manner that it's uh, available the power becomes more available to everybody right because as utilities go up which is going to happen because we're building more and more wind farms and more and more solar um, uh, farms, the utilities are going to increase, and it's the impoverished that are going to suffer. Mm-hmm. And that, when you talk about impoverished, that's you know, sixty percent of our people are on welfare. Yeah, wow. And that's impoverished. Even today, even today, because of the high cost of utilities, we have two or three families living in one house because they just can't afford the kind of utility costs it takes to wow. to run a household. So it's going to get worse, and. Uh, and what you're going to see is a lot of, you know, pushback by ordinary people that live on a reserve mm-hmm. that are struggling. And until Canadians realize this is a crisis, you know, it's going to continue to grow and become a real, real problem for us mm-hmm. and for Canada. I grew up uh, uh, understanding, appreciate a democratic system. And I really believe that uh, the problems that we're creating right now, especially with the populist governments coming up and so forth is is that the average person thinks they know as much as a politician and that's not the way it's supposed to be the way it's supposed to be is we elect individuals because we're working we don't have time to touch on and learn all the issues that are important to this country Mm -hmm. and we elect politicians to become informed on subjects and unfortunately our politicians aren't becoming informed. Yeah, they they they're becoming people that stick to one topic that they support, mm-hmm. and they won't hear or listen the other side of the topic. And I, you know, I, I never thought it existed until I worked on Northern Gateway and saw in 2016 when we tried to meet with the Prime Minister on several occasions, wrote letters and so forth, and him not even responding. And then realizing the only reason he didn't was because he had he had a plan, he had a strategy, and that strategy was to not listen to anybody and make sure this project got canceled. Wow! And that's not the way to represent your people. You have to listen to both sides of the stories. Right. You've got to give rationale for your decision, and he gave no rationale for that. Yeah. The only thing he said was that every First Nation person I talked to didn't support this project, which was wrong. Right. And, you know, I really believe that uh, this this whole system is 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 lacking in trust. Mm-hmm. Nobody trusts the uh, 
federal representatives or even to some extent provincial representatives because they they don't feel they're making rational decisions. They're not listening to the whole story. Well, the, the Northern Gateway Project strikes me as an outrageous example where the project went through all kinds of discussion, consultation, and a lot of thoughtful analysis. And it was approved. Most of the First Nations were on board with it. Uh, advocates like yourself were um, articulate leaders who spoke up in favor of it, and everyone was going to benefit. And the government said, no, we're going to put that aside and we're going to cancel it. And you didn't have a voice, did you? No. No, it's it's terrible. I mean, I, I talk to a lot of uh, people who are, uh, you know, oil and gas supporters. I've talked in a lot of conferences where we thought everybody in the oil and gas industry knew about what what and how Northern Gateway got cancelled, and it's surprising to hear that they were all convinced that it wasn't. It was through the legislative system that, or through the regulatory system, that it was cancelled. That it wasn't approved. Mm-hmm. No, it wasn't. And a lot of people didn't realize or didn't know that uh, Trudeau didn't didn't talk to us. You know, they they thought that uh, they didn't know that 31 out of the 40 communities along the right of way were in support of the project, not just in support, but actually owned part. We're going to own part of the project. Mm-hmm. And as owners, we're going to take on the risk of the project. Yeah. Nothing you nothing you see like that has existed to this day, not even mm-hmm. on TMX or CN, CGL yet. So just to put things into perspective, Dale, you're looking at a, a very strategic vision of using um, business as an opportunity to get rid of on-reserve poverty. And uh, you have quite a vision. So when it comes to the policy initiatives of this current federal government, the so-called just transition, which is really all about shutting down the oil and gas industry, what does that mean then for the viability of your vision? Well, it's, it hurts it uh, extraordinarily because if we if if we're going to develop programs that are going to bring our people out of poverty into employment, we need jobs to be able to give to them. And the transition, the just transition, is really geared towards taking away millions and millions of jobs. Mm. And the natural resource sector cannot survive if uh, it's going to be hindered by something like the just transition. And if the natural resource industry gets hurt and gets reduced, or we see a a big uh, downfall in terms of employment and projects, we're going to see a lot more downfall in our communities because we live there full time. We just can't, our communities don't, uh, you know, get up and, you know, uh, move to another country or Mm -hmm. move to another province. We stay on those reserves. Mm -hmm. So when the economy goes bad in our region, so do we go bad. So it's important for us to be able to support the natural resource industry to argue against unfair legislation like the trust transition and what it what it what it means to 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 the industry. So it's it's part of what we do, and I think it's it's one of the uh, main focuses we have, especially now. Mm-hmm. So to be clear, the just transition is a transition to nowhere for First Nations. That's right. I mean, it it doesn't. Uh, include any real strategy to offset what they propose they're taking away in terms of the oil and gas industry, for example. There's no alternative to that. Um, there's no alternative to the kind of um, 
mining that we're, we're trying to support, the kind of um, development, especially in infrastructure that we're trying to that we're trying to put together. I mean, everything depends on our ability to be able to, to um, defeat uh, on-reserve poverty, and we're not going to do that if the government is managing poverty. I think of even the, the practical aspects, Gail, of, um, you know, on First Nations, we know that uh, diesel runs the show there in many First Nations. And uh, just the, the endless list of carbon taxes going piling on top of, of diesel is just pummeling people's pocketbooks. That's right. I mean, most people in the north are dependent on um, diesel, and it's, it's not necessarily... Um, huge diesel generators. It's usually generators that are located just outside your own house. Mm-hmm. And it's it's terrible to imagine that um, if they're not able to, you know, develop power resources that replace their diesel generators, that they're going to have to create and supplement their income to be able to adjust to it. Mm-hmm. And that's going to cause, that's the only place that's going to come from is the Canadian tax taxpayers, mm-hmm. and they're going to put us into into jeopardy. And um, I think it's it's deplorable for the government to think that the northern communities in a country as cold as Canada can survive on wind and solar. Yeah, it just it just doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's insane. One of our senior associates at Frontier is uh, Joseph Cornell, and he's written extensively about the importance of property rights uh, for um, development, including on First Nations. Are, is there a vision that you'd have for, for property rights on First Nations? Well, you know, I don't, I don't think we, we need anything that as drastic as being able to control and own our, own our own land, like fee simple land on private property. Mm-hmm. I think what we need to do is focus on owning the natural resource industry, owning the assets that's um, are the, you know, Canada is one of the richest countries in, ter- in terms of natural resources. And they've been, the Canadian government and the industry has been, um, you know, utilizing those resources for the last 150 years. And First Nations haven't been part of that prosperity. Hmm. We have to change that. We think that instead of uh, changing the royalty structure in such a way that, uh, First Nations get a piece of, mm-hmm. of the pie on the royalties mm-hmm. is not the answer. Yeah, We think the answer is that we own, that we're legislated to own a lot of development in this, in this country, whether it's mining, oil and gas, you know, anything that has to do with natural resources, we should get an automatic ownership of it. And that won't cost Canadian taxpayers anything. It'll just mean that the government won't get as big a piece of the pie mm-hmm. as, um, as as they would if they give a portion of it to mm-hmm. us. And the reason that should happen is because we believe we're going to be there for a long period of time. We're going to be able to protect the environment. All you have to do is look at the giant mine in Northwest Territories, built in the 50s, ran for 40 years, went under, and now they got this huge $4 billion reclamation, environmental reclamation, that the taxpayers have to pay. Mm-hmm. If, if they had consulted with the First Nations in the 1950s, you wouldn't have this problem right now because they'd be monitoring that system because we live there. Our community community First Nation people live in that area. We're not pulling, you know, out roots and moving someplace else. So, you know, they they 
stood for 40 years while people, you know, took advantage of all the natural resources from that mine. Hmm. And now you got all this huge, huge problem out there. You know, the, the um, reclamation that's needed is going to have to be monitored for the next 200 years. Right. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Hmm. So that's why we want to we want to be part of it. We want to own it. we want to take on the risk, and then taking on the risk, we also take on the responsibility for environmental protection. Mm-hmm. If we just get a share of the royalties and a check every year, that means we don't have any responsibility mm-hmm. for environmental protection. And that means we don't have a seat on a board on these uh, major project developments, and that that's what we want to be part of. And that's we believe that's the only way to do it. So, Dale, as we kind of come to the the close of our conversation, as you look to the future, do you think it's time that we review the Indian Act and look at getting rid of it? Yeah, it's an interesting question. I mean, it's it's come up uh, for the past three or four decades, you know, the idea of removing the uh, Indian Act and allowing us to be more self-governed and mm-hmm. so forth and allow us to... Um, you know, to work with our treaty rights and so forth. The problem with all of that is, I think, before you, you know, you don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. You, you want to be able to get a solution in there first, an alternative to the Indian Act. Uh, 200 First Nations or more in this country are not under treaty. So it's not necessarily so that they have the kind of treaty rights that were empowered to, you know, communities that were that that did have a mm-hmm. treaty with the federal government so it's important to to understand that um, I think um, we have to focus more on the, the real crisis at hand and that is the poverty that exists within our communities we have to be able to focus on our ability to be, bring our young people out of this social welfare society and to embrace their tradition and culture Right now, we don't have enough young people that know about our tradition and culture, and we've got to be able to turn that around. So, Dale, when you look at um, action with uh, Canadians or advice to um, uh, what every Canadian can do in terms of their voice, what would you recommend to our governments? What do they need to do in terms of enabling more business to happen on First Nations so that we can uh, get rid of on reserve poverty. Yeah, I, I think we need to, you know, tell the federal government to, you know, urge industry to work on developing major projects within and on our reserves, you know, near and on our reserves. We need, you know, project developments to, uh, you know, include pro- uh, uh, employment opportunities that can. I can offer employment to our mm-hmm. people on social welfare, and that's the unemployable, and that's important. Mm-hmm. And it's not going to cost the Canadian government or the taxpayers any money mm-hmm. because we're paying through the nose right now for the kind of social welfare monies it takes to support people on social welfare. Right. All we have to do is divert that money into employment programs and so forth and you know, commit to long-term transition transitional strategy that means you know don't offer these programs over a year don't offer them one time these programs go on forever until we get to a point where we're fully employed and then you're going to see you know as part of you know not 
not an Indian society so much, but we'll be part of a Canadian society. And we'll be, we'll be part of supporting Canada. And that's what we need. That's what we need to do. Well, well said. Uh, Gail Swampy, the president of the National Coalition of Chiefs, thank you so much for sharing your vision and challenging us to think about what we can do to work together to get rid of not only on-reserve poverty, but to move our country forward in prosperity. Thank you for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for watching Leaders on the Frontier. We're a nonpartisan think tank. We explore ideas, policy, and practical solutions that can make a difference in the lives of Canadians. We do not accept any government funding. We work for you. Thank you for supporting Frontier. Visit fcpp.org to give. While you're there, be sure to check out our latest articles and research. Without open discussion and debate, you're not thinking, nor are you free. Comment below. We'd love for you to join the conversation.